Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Footnotes and Furry Tales with me, Damien Fox. This is a platform that I hope showcases the people of Newry and their stories. My guest today is a documentary producer. He works at the BBC. I think he's perhaps best known for his documentary, Here We Are, which quite masterfully captured the story of Newry City's resurrection and rise back to the top flight of Irish League football. He's incredibly talented. That documentary in particular received widespread acclaim and it was actually then nominated for an award. So I'm really looking forward to talking to my guest today. Um, let me introduce you to Ali McKenzie. Hello, Damien. How are you doing? I'm good, Ali. How are you? I'm doing well. That's probably as close as I'll ever get to hearing my own eulogy. That was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> if needs be, we can... Uh, Set it aside, and when the time comes, we, we can have that etched on, on your head. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, I wanted to talk about um, kind of young Ali McKenzie, you know, as a teenager, what was the aspirations? And if you look at it in hindsight, has, has it changed from what you hoped to achieve and be? Um, and if it has changed, what was it that you aspired to be um, in the beginning? I suppose when I was like uh, early days teenager in high school, I went to Newry High, I always kind of wanted to play music and always wanted to be in a band. That was my main thing. Um, but then when I realized I wasn't very good at that and didn't really have the talent for it, I actually started photographing my friends' bands with an old digital camera that I had and just had a mad kind of passion for photography um, and I didn't really have much interest in school other than like art and history. So didn't know what to pursue. And I was just like, well, I enjoy this end of things. And that's kind of what I pursued. Um, you know, I, I went to school, got my GCSEs and left. And my parents kind of co coaxed me going back in to, to do my A-levels again. Um, they actually bribed me with a guitar at the time. So I went back, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I was very kind of set that I wanted to be a photographer and left and went to tech. And when I went to the tech at the time, it just kind of opened up a new world to me where media was the thing like, you know, moving image and, and working with video. And I was like, you know, I could take all the skills from photography and put that into moving video and actually tell stories. And since I think really like my first week in tech, it was the first time I'd ever kind of excelled or succeeded academically. And I was kind of like, you know, I think this is the career that I want to pursue. Um, but I always remember like being really young and being obsessed with Spider-Man when I was about nine or 10. And with Peter Parker being a photographer, that was always something that I, I really liked and something I've never forgotten, you know, that that was, I think, maybe just etched in there somewhere that uh, I, would, I would always have a camera in my hand. Mm -hmm. And was there anything at that time that you've seen in terms of documentary film where you thought, this is the standard I want to get to or this is what I aspire to be? You know, who, who was it in that industry, perhaps, or a filmmaker, documentary maker that you kind of looked to and thought that's that's the benchmark it's it's a hard one to say like people have asked me before about that you know who inspired you or who did this but i think the amazing thing with films and music and they're very like-minded in that you'll hear a band and you might say well who inspired that band and then that opens up the world of who inspired that so you go for thin lizzie and then you end up listening to blues music you end up going right back and it's kind of like that with films you know like when we were younger my mum tells me that I used to watch videos literally from start to finish, start to finish. And then she would rent another one next week and it would just be back and forth the whole time watching the same film seven days a week and never get bored of it. And as I started getting older, my family would go to the cinema and 
from a young age, like, I mean, eight or nine, I would say, I don't want to go to see what you're going to see. I'll get a lift in, but I'll go and see something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I kind of opened up the world to me and like the films that I was interested in. And I'd start getting older, you know, I had a teacher called Lenny Niblock, who was kind of a big influence in a way, because when we started doing film studies, he would lend me DVDs. So I said, you know, I like Scorsese's film. He's like, well, you should check this out. You should check out this film. And it kind of opened up that whole back catalogue of films. But documentary wasn't really on my radar. And as far as I was concerned, you know, particularly when I was younger, documentary was a sit-down interview covered with a load of shots and there wasn't much excitement yeah. and there wasn't much happening, which, you know, it was very much the way that things were up until, I suppose, the last 10 years where documentary has actually become a real cinematic uh, art form and you know people are telling stories with it and, and making it almost hollywood-esque that when you go into netflix now people are actually searching for documentaries rather than feature films but when i was younger documentaries weren't particularly some like an avenue that i wanted to pursue and my mom always used to say to me she was like you know tell real life stories tell people stories and i was like oh, i want to you know i want gun battles and i want this and i want car chases but the older i got and i suppose the more mature you get the more i realized that telling people like everyday people's stories is probably the most interesting thing that you can do and mm. i think it's one of the toughest skills in the world is going and meeting a stranger um and being able to put their story onto a screen whether it be for five minutes or 30 minutes for a documentary or a, an entire series it's just being able to go into a real life situation and work out okay how do i find the story in this and how do i tell that that's real interesting and that's something that, that got me when it came to documentary um because when i was at university you know i i went and did a film production course and the aim was to pursue feature filmmaking um and in my second year they asked us to produce a documentary and i went and produced a documentary on an underground battle rap scene that was happening in london and it was a bit weird you know a, a guy from bestbrook just ended up in london at this battle rap scene and but i remember thinking like these are real life people and you can't fake this you know um particularly when it came to making those kind of narrative films and short films, you needed a big crew, you needed actors, you needed money, you needed food to feed them. <laughs> With documentary, I, I grabbed the camera and my friend Jonathan at the time, and we literally just headed into London and it cost us 20 quid on the train. And I was like, this is a very accessible way of making films. And it was great practice because I could do it anywhere. I could grab a camera and interview people. I could go into a shop and find characters and I didn't need to all of a sudden write scripts and have a crew behind me. So that's kind of how it opened up to me and then I just realized that you know it's kind of limitless what you can do with with a camera in your hand yeah I mean you've kind of touched upon it in so much as that you've said pursuing the human story um if I'm honest and I haven't said this as yet as to kind of the genesis of this podcast series um there's a I think he's kind of labeled as an historian but he himself doesn't describe him that, himself that way. He describes himself uh, essentially as a storyteller. He's an American historian, storyteller called David McCullough. Um, they call him America's historian. Um, but what he tried to capture, I mean, when you when you delve into history, you can get, I, I suppose you can get essentially lost in the facts, you know, um, the dates and stuff. But what he wanted to tell ultimately was a very human history where he looked at people, because ultimately it's people that determine their story uh, and impact then on the wider story. So that kind of motivated me to kind of look at, certainly through the medium of podcast, to look at a series of people and capture their story that otherwise wouldn't necessarily have been told. Um, so that's, in, in essence, why 
in part, I've done this. I want to certainly give a platform to people in Newry that are doing pretty cool things. Um, but I think allowing people to tell the story that ordinarily wouldn't be told. And it is the human story that I suppose for you as a documentary maker and producer um, is the very essence. And it's what ultimately, um, I suppose, draws people in. It's, it's, it's that ability to relate to other people that perhaps have experience similar things to yourself how, yeah. how did you how did you take to it because it's one thing to approach people but to ultimately try and draw that story out of them did you find that challenging yeah and i think before i, I kind of get to my approach on it is i was very much self-taught you know in university it was like go and make a documentary here's an example go and make one mm -hmm. and but no one had explained that there are different types of documentaries there's so many different types and observational documentary is ultimately what I do now, but I didn't know really that there was an approach to that and there's a skill set that you really need to have. And there's a language that you need to learn visually when you're, when you're working on an obstock. So I was just going out and hoovering up tons of B-roll, getting interviews, cutting them together, watching them back and ultimately being, you know, dissatisfied that I wasn't really connecting or I wasn't feeling what was going on and didn't really know how to, to move that on. Um, so then I, you know, I made a couple of documentaries and then I actually came home for the summer when I was at uni and met a producer called Emma Rosa Diaz from Belfast who runs Aphromike Productions, who's a very good friend of mine. And at the time, I obviously didn't know her and she said she needed someone who was nearly London based to do um, a documentary on the mod scene. And because I was an R from London, I was like, yes, I better hand off to do it. And all of a sudden started working with, you know, an experienced producer who was able to kind of help me and guide me. And all of a sudden I was, you know, making a 45 minute documentary while still a student, um, while still trying to get my, my grades. But ultimately I was like, well, I want to do this as a career. So I, I kind of focused on that and then ended up, you know, that documentary was a success and we got commissioned to go to Tokyo to make a documentary. So it was to do a follow up, but basically look at the mod scene in Japan. So I missed my graduation and my mom still doesn't talk to me today about that because that, that really hurts her. She never got her day out in her dress, but uh, you know, I went to Tokyo and then it was almost with every project I started to learn, but it was only really, I think in 2019, um, after a bit of a, a break from the industry, I remember saying to my wife or my girlfriend at the time, I was like, look, I'm going to give this one more year because you know, it's a, it's a very difficult industry to get into. And it's like any industry, you know, and, and trying to make a living out of it is difficult. And I was teaching part-time at the tech. And I said, I'm going to give this one more year. And if I don't get a breakthrough with it, I think I'm just going to focus on the teaching. And that year, Emma kind of came back around and, um, you know, we, we started up. Um, she, she told me that she was working on a series called The Search, which is a BBC NI series that followed the community rescue services that try to find missing people in Northern Ireland. And she rang me and she was like, are you interested? And I just said, yeah. And all of a sudden just started working on the search. And the skill set that that taught me was just something that I don't think I'll ever, you know, it, I think everyone has one project that grounds them. And I think that was for me the big one. Yeah, I learned so much in that, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of experienced people, um, editors, uh, the director was Sarah Breen and Emma as a producer. And it was just kind of like, I was in safe hands. I was out like trekking mountains it was out in forests you know we were trying to find missing people we were in in lakes searching for them but it was always constantly about the volunteers and about the families involved you know and that was the thing that was constantly grounded into me i am 
I remember uh, writing on my hand in the early days, I was like, what are the people feeling? And that was what I constantly needed to get, you know? So while they were distressed or they were trying to find people or they were, um, you know, maybe feeling a bit, this isn't going anywhere, we're struggling. I was constantly just throwing them questions, asking them things like, how's it going? How are you feeling just now? What's happening? And it was just to get that connection with the audience because if you get that on camera, once you go back to edit, that will translate and that will go across when it hits TV then. So, you know, kind of... If oh, I, just, I spoke to Gareth McCullough last week and he was telling me about a particular story that he was reporting on. He, I suppose at that point he had said there's a certain cynicism in journalism. You know, he, he fully understood when he was talking to a mother of a sick child that he needed to capture someone that's distraught, emotional, um, because that would have the biggest impact. Um do, do you find that the same of, of, of documentary making in that whilst, you know, you have somebody that is visibly distressed, you have to remain essentially in part objective in order to capture that so that it has the desired impact? Of course, because I'm there to capture it. And if I don't capture it properly, the audience will never feel how that person is feeling. So mm -hmm. it is kind of taking a step back. And not getting too immersed in it and you know obviously you'll feel the empathy and you'll feel everything but it's also being like how do i tell the story properly so that people can understand how they're feeling so th that's a tough line to kind of to walk um and in your early days when you're inexperienced you know you tend to either cut too early or drop the camera or but when whenever we were out in a project like the search everyone knows well i i came into the second series everybody knew the series they supported the crs teams so they were very much, you know, you film what you need to film. And that was that was a great thing for me. I was able just to kind of, I suppose, have my own discernment and things and be like, okay, now's the time to put it away. Now I've got what I need. And never kind of overstepping that mark and being, you know, in person with people. So I think like a lot of people would ask me what the main skills for making documentaries are. I think it just comes down to people skills. Because mm -hmm. if you don't have people skills, you're not going to get people to talk to you. People won't open up to you. They won't trust you. And that's ultimately what you need if you want them to, to tell their story to you. I wanted to ask because and in part you've, you've answered it for me. Um, I just wonder if you give me a little bit more detail. Um, when you have a documentary piece or, or, or a film, is there a particular and a general roadmap that you need to follow that perhaps you're taught in college in order that you reach and have the greatest impact to as broad an audience as possible? You know, are there certain themes or checkpoints along the way that you need to essentially follow? Not rigidly, but to a degree, in, in that you can then gain empathy, compassion, laughter, whatever it might be. What have you learned? What are those pillars in the narrative that you need to check or hit, hit them on the way in order to, to have the desired uh, impact? Yeah, I suppose what a lot of people might not realize is that documentaries are scripted in ways like, you know, when we're going into a project, you will have a loose script mm -hmm. and it's not scripted as in like made in Chelsea scripted, but it's scripted in that you have your blocks and you know what you need. So if you're telling a story, you will know that here's your five main points that you need to hit. Okay. Um, but what I always think is the most important thing in, in films is the setup, you know, and it's getting to know the people who you're going to invest the next either five minutes or 30 minutes or an hour and a half to watch or sometimes it could be eight hours on netflix that you're sitting watching people but it's mm -hmm. the setup and for me that's the most important thing is how do you make those people likable 
how do you make people want to keep watching within in the next few minutes sometimes it's very hard to do because you'll work with people who might not be the most engaging or they might not particularly want to be doing what you're asking them to do but sometimes it'll click with people and you'll just be like well this is a character this is someone who people will want to tune into and when that happens i think it's a very easy process um but yeah there, there are a lot of steps to follow when it does come to like i would call them your beats and I think once you hit your beats and you know that you, you have on camera all your beats of your story, then you know that that will translate hopefully on screen that people see it. But ultimately it comes down to, did you capture it when you needed to capture it? And I suppose is the person engaging enough that you want to sit and invest some time in them? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's yeah. difficult because I, I never actually think of those questions. You know, I, I like one of those, it just becomes so natural to you that when you're on a project, you'll just sit down and you'll map that out and you'll just go and shoot it. But I never actually think about it, if that makes sense anymore. Yeah. So much I, I, yeah. I, I thought about it today, and I suppose I, I, I thought equally about documentary and film. Um, obviously, everybody has their own taste. But when a film or a documentary is put out there, I would imagine it's done in a way that it's going to have the biggest catchment that it possibly can, in so much as it looks to touch upon our sympathies and sensitivities. It looks to perhaps engage our laughter. You know, you not get everybody, but this certainly is a blueprint, I'm sure, that the industry has, that they hit these beats as you put it along the way, and it's going to ultimately have the desired, desired effect. Um, but like you've said, um, you've touched upon it in so much as that there are those pillars that you, you, you try to... Um, follow in in order that you, that you deliver the story. Um, you've mentioned just previously, and I, and I kind of wanted to talk about it because everyone that I've spoke to, I've wanted to understand obstacles and challenges and perhaps parts of their journey would have felt perhaps not beaten, but certainly deterred from following on um, in their desired career or passion or, or pursuit of it. You said there was a point there where you we're going to give it one more year and essentially step away if something didn't happen. Mm-hmm. What was it really at that point? Why did you feel disheartened? I suppose it, it wasn't like falling out with the love of making a film or, or anything like that, because I think I would still be doing that regardless. Cause that was always to me, it, it, it's, it's been like a hobby that I've really enjoyed. And even mm-hmm. though I work on it now, I still have my own little things at the side that I love making videos and I love connecting but I think it was more of as as a career, you know, and was, I'm going to get in trouble here, but it was 2018 or 2019, I got engaged, 2018. And then I was kind of like, right, we're thinking about getting married. We're going to need a house, you know, we're going to need the things that come with that. And I just thought I was at the point where I was like, kind of just on the outskirts, I was getting the odd project here and there, but not enough to sustain anything. And I just thought, you know, it's either I go to teaching full time and keep, keep my hobby and enjoy what I do like the Nuri doc or go just go for it just go for it and see what happens and if it doesn't work it doesn't work I had the teaching to fall back on so when I got the search job I was teaching part-time at the time and the way the search worked is that you basically worked on a 24 hour you were on call for 24 hours so the minute Tuesday hit at 12 o'clock that was you until essentially Wednesday and I would be working like three days a week and then going in to teach. So I could have been on a search to maybe like, you know, half 12 at night, two o'clock in the morning, some mornings it carried over and then I had to come straight in to teach. And it was a very difficult year, but in that year, 
like a lot happened and i think it was just because i just said i'm just going to go for it i'm just going to say yes to things and the search happened i got a, a small commission for myself uh which was a short film actually about my wife who was a who was a boxer and had retired at the time and then i ended up getting uh so through the company with alfred mike we ended up having two 30 minute docs commissioned which i directed as well and it just all seemed to happen and the following year at 2020 uh, in january there was a week where four of the films that were on the BBC that week I had directed or produced. And it was just a weird moment because it was kind of like, you know, like those London bus analogies where you're waiting and to arrive. It was, you know, I never had like a proper TV credit up until that point. Like we got the Newry doc to television, but that was through our own hard work and our own tenacity of getting it there, but to actually be commissioned to do something. And then there were four projects in the space of a week and it was a bit, it was a bit surreal, you know? Um, but that was when I realized I suppose it, it for everyone it takes that moment of are you good enough to do it as a career or is it something that you will be a hobbyist at? And it was kind of like, like you, that year like you gave said, me confidence. I would imagine that was surreal given everything that you've invested in it. Um, but I suppose in part it was validation that you are good enough. Is that how you saw it? Yeah, definitely. I think like I always believed. I was good enough. Like I've always had the confidence to think all I need is, is the right opportunity. And, but you know, it's, it, it is a difficult industry to kind of break your way into it. And particularly because I always wanted to produce and direct documentaries that narrows the jobs down greatly because you're coming in at the lowest level and the people at the highest level are making the documentaries and getting the commissions. And you, you can only aspire to make TV or films as good as that they're making, so it, it's very difficult. Whereas had I had I come in as a researcher or worked my way up, you know that's a very viable way, option and a viable way of doing it and a sensible way. But I just mm -hmm. kind of always had it that I wanted to produce and direct documentaries, which kind of limited my options. But going in and and working on those documentaries, you know, gave me the opportunity to prove that I could do it. Now, when I look back at some of them, like it's, I suppose it's like like everybody that is does anything creative. All you see are the flaws in it, but um, you know I, I I do look back on I, I never watched them all like I couldn't sit back and watch them, but I'm proud of the kind of the track record and the films. But the thing I'm probably the most happiest with is just the range of stories and the versatility of it. You know I've worked with people from rescue volunteers to soul singers in choirs, you know, to former boxers. It just depends what the subject matter was. But again, just coming back to it, it's always just the human element. And mm -hmm. no matter what the kind of the subject matter is, it's like, can you connect with that person? And that's something that I've always been been able to do, I think, through people skills, you know. I want to talk then about, obviously, the Newry City documentary. Um, here we are. I've just recently finished it. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, Thanks. There was many elements to it in terms of the emotion. You know, there was humor, obviously. I mean, if we look specifically at... Um, the passing of Darren Mullen's father, that played a part in it. And you could see, and I said it to Gareth, um, that must have been a difficult thing. I would imagine for you also in filming that, because obviously you have to have certain sensitivity. Um, but for Darren, he kind of played out a little bit of that grief on TV and on the documentary. Um, but again, there was humor through it. Uh, there was elation, you know, ultimately at the end, as, as Gareth put it, he talked about it in the, in the sense of a romantic comedy. You know, everyone ended up happy and, you know, walked into the sunset. Mm -hmm. 
How rewarding an experience was it for you looking back on it? Um, I would imagine there would have been ample challenges trying to put that thing together because in effect, it was just you and Gareth doing it. Um, so talk to me about some of the challenges you faced. Um, was there a point along the way that you felt this isn't going to get done? And then having wrapped that documentary and put it away, um, what was the most rewarding thing about it? The, the most difficult thing, first of all, was, you know, as Gareth had talked about, initially it was supposed to be a 10 to 15 minute short just on here's the club, here's this. But as we looked into it and, you know, it's, it's always, again, finding that story and the whole thing, there was... Uh, a local man who had essentially given up quite a lot of stuff in around his own personal life to focus all of his energy on a football club that didn't have many fans that you know doesn't draw thousands through the gate and uh, mm -hmm. there's no no financial reward for him but it was just the passion of of his local team and his local town and and being that driving force and that really interested me straight away but the, the difficult thing for us was basically that we had then changed it from a 20 minute doc to we're following the season here. And essentially if you're following a season, you either need them to get to a cup final and lose. So it's dramatic or get to a cup final and win. So it's dramatic. And what mm -hmm. we didn't want was for it to peter out into nothing. And yeah. that was the, the, the toughest thing for us. There was a, a part of the season where it did peter out and it looked like they were going nowhere. It was terrible. Um, I remember just thinking, we've wasted six months here and but it wasn't like a waste we were like right well what can we do with what we have and mm -hmm. it was almost going back to the original idea but i remember standing in the car park after uh, it was a game i can't remember but i got off the bus with raymond uh, remy burn and with darren mullen and we we're standing in the car park and i said to ray i've never worked on anything yet that hasn't worked out so I think this will, and I think the team had 10 games to go and then it, it all turned around then. Now, it had nothing to do with me saying that, but it was just, I just believed that we would get the ending. And it's funny that everyone was so invested in it. I remember the first day going into the film, Ian Kern gave me dog's abuse. He was just like, you know, Ian, Ian's such a great guy. Give me dog's abuse. What are you doing in here? Get that camera out of here. Winding me up constantly. And by the end, like they just, they were welcoming me in. I could go in at any point. They were so friendly and welcoming and i i feel like i almost in, embedded myself into that changing room as well which i had to do to become the fly on the wall and you know the, the doc it had so many challenges in that first of all i didn't know what i was doing um mm. we had terrible terrible equipment like it was shot on like a camera now that's just not up to scratch and uh, it was dated when we shot it to be honest the camera um you know we, we didn't have the proper sound equipment we didn't have anything um, but we just hoped we had a story that could carry us through. And it did, you know, it worked out really well. Um, and when you mentioned Darren's father passing away, that was one of the moments where in complete inexperience, I just thought this is over. Like, you know, I can't approach this man and ask, like, how, how do you approach that conversation so soon after? Or how long do you leave it before I contact him again? Does, that, does he not want me at the club now? Is he going to be struggling with things? And... I th sometimes I think in filmmaking it's it's more important what you do without the camera than it is what you do with the camera and you know my dad and myself went up to the wake and we spoke with Darren and um you know we we kind of just put ourselves out there and just said look give you know told the family that we were sorry to hear about their their dad um and it's those little moments I think away from filming you know we weren't looking for a story we were just genuinely going up to talk to him mm -hmm. man to man just to say we're very sorry about it 
and I remember Darren saying at the time that that kind of touched him that it was away from from that it was just the personal level so Darren rang me like a few days later I'm just like um do you want to come up to the house here and do an interview and I was like uh, yeah 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 I'll be up soon so went up and interviewed him you know and it, it was a bit surreal I felt completely out of my depth completely because I never interviewed anyone about grief before that um I never spoken to anyone literally going through it at that time as well but Darren was so candid and made it easy and it's that kind of character and that that person's story that I think carries you through a, a documentary like that and makes you think okay this could work and mm -hmm. you know it was difficult surely through an experience but Darren was was great and almost guiding myself through that you know here's how to you know come on up bring the camera I'm I'm open I'm happy and I think for him when he looks back in his career he now has a season documented where he can look back and probably the toughest moment of his life, but also one of the most rewarding because at the end when I interviewed him, when they promoted, all he talked about was his dad. He was so happy mm. to be able to do it for him. And, you know, I, I, it is a privilege at times to feel that you can actually give that to someone that he now has a memory for a lifetime. But for me, it was, it was a project and I moved on to the next project after. But for those people involved, they'll, they'll remember that forever. Absolutely. I, I said it before and that's, I don't know if you see it that way, but that is a remarkable gift, surely for Darren Mullen, but to everyone involved in that project, that it's captured in time. Um, the legacy of that season is secured. You know, not everybody gets that. Mm -hmm. You know, every, a lot of people involved in different things, you know, they make incredible accomplishments and achievements that aren't captured in that way. So I think everyone involved were very fortunate. And I think you and Kara should be recognized. Um, because it was a huge investment on your part personally, you know, at the time, because in, in the beginning you'd said that would be a 10 to 15 minute documentary, but when you commit yourself to a full season and there's no certainty to the outcome, there's no guarantee of a story. That's remarkable that you showed, I, I suppose, depth of character that you were willing to make that commitment over the course of a season, regardless. Um, and like Gareth, I've, I've said that you both have been ambassadors for the club, whether officially or unofficially. Um, and I understand you're a huge Newry City fan. Um, mm -hmm. And I think as much as you get from, from being a supporter, I think you've given back. Um, so I respect you for that. Um, I really enjoyed the documentary. I wanted to know then, having premiered that in Newry, what was the general, you know, feedback and i want to understand not that you would have received criticism because it was wonderful but how you deal with criticism or is your own self-critic criticism um how do you manage that yeah that's that's one of the toughest things i think is learning that because yeah i think your nature is that you want people to to say that you're amazing and that you're brilliant um but you'll never get that when you're putting creative work out there i suppose because mm. everyone has their own tastes things that they like um they might not know exactly what they like but they'll definitely know what they don't like and they're not shy in telling you that mm -hmm. and i think early on it could be absolutely crumbling for people um and it, it has been for me at times as well facing criticism where you know uh, like whenever you have an idea you genuinely believe that it's the best idea that anyone's ever had and I'm sure it's the same for songwriters that like, when they write a song, they're like, no one has written a song like this. And then when mm -hmm. you take a step back, 
you're kind of like, okay, so there's things to work on there. Um, like with criticism as of got older and matured, like I, I could take criticism, no problem now. And it's, you know, it's part of my, it's everyday life for us. If we come up with an idea and we're sitting in the office and people, you tell people your idea, the first thing they said was, well, why this, why that, why is that going to happen? And it's no one, okay, it's a collaborative process. Let's take everybody's ideas and make this better. But I think early on, you're so defensive that you're afraid to almost speak it out loud in case somebody picks a hole in it. But ultimately, that's that's what makes it better. Um, but as I said, it's it's just part of our work now. Every single stage of a production is crit critiqued. You know, before we can even get a commission, you come up with an idea. You sit in a room with people. You you know, you kind of workshop that idea. What what's good about it? You know, uh, do we have the characters? Is this feasible? How much is it going to cost? They'll, they'll ask tons and tons of questions to the point where you're like, I haven't really thought this through. You come back with the answers, and then it's the next set of questions. How are we going to make this happen? Then you go to the commissioners, and they'll ask you the exact same questions. You know, what's your idea? How's this going to work? Why does an audience want to actually tune into this? Then then you get the green light, and then you start making it, and then you're like, Have I shot this right? Is the sound okay? Is this okay? And you come back and watch the rushes and you you, you realize that you've forgotten something you have to go back out to get. And then you go to an editor. The editor says, well, you're missing this, you're missing that. We need to do this, we need to do that. So every single stage is critiqued. So it's not like, I wouldn't say it's water off a duck's back, but it depends how personal the project is to you these days. Like if it's a very personal project, yes, you'll be a bit more precious about it. But you know, in the day-to-day -day stuff that you're out producing and when you go back, it, it's just a, a fully collaborative process. You'll, you'll get a final cut and then you'll pull in the executive producers on it and they'll say, well, I think we need this. I think we need that. And then it goes to the commissioners and they'll look at it and they'll say, mm, we're missing this. Why do we not have this? And then it's back. You know, so it's a constant. There's so many people involved with the production and whoever's name is in a documentary for producer or director or for whatever their credit is, there's been so many opinions to get it to that point. And so many people have helped it. But I suppose you just have to have the courage of your convictions to say, well, I think this is the way it needs to be told. And then people kind of help you and guide you to that. Um, so crit criticism and critique can help, but it all depends on how it's delivered. You know, um, I work in very professional environments, so people are are nice with it. Sometimes they'll give you a kick up the arse that you need with it, which is which is more than good. But um, I think if you're reading comments online about things or anything like that, which I, I tend not to do, I don't really have to do. But I think that could be difficult, you know, and I can understand why people would find that that a hard thing to do. What would sit with you longer, having put out this documentary, and I know you've done several, but I want to understand introspectively, when you look at yourself and the body of work that you've done so far, is it the flaws that you see in your work or the reward that you take from it? What, what, what do you think, if you were to balance that out, which sits with you longer? Do you know what? I, it actually changed for me two weeks ago this, which is really funny, and I was talking to um, of an executive producer, Mark Gemma, and I was talking to her about this today, actually. So as, I think everyone's the same. They'll always see the flaw no matter what you do. You'll, you'll mm -hmm. look at it and you'll say, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. Most people will never notice. Yeah. And uh, like if I said, I'll be like, oh, I should have put that shot in instead of that shot. The audience will never know that because they don't know that that shot exists. So, but I think it's just, you know, it's just something you do for yourself. It's human nature, I, yeah. I, you learn from it and you move on. But I've always been, you know, very critical of things and, would be very, very anxious um, if something was going on TV, like to the point where I would feel physically sick. Like, and that's that's happened several times. Um, 
I like I tend not to watch things that go to TV because when it when it happens, like I've probably seen it forty times to that point, you know. Anyway, um, mm. but I like just seeing what people's reactions are. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, it, it changed slightly because I, you know, I did an insert like a five minute film on um, a local runner, Willie McCracken, for a program called Community Life. I seen and it. Yeah. It was just like you know, it was a nice insert. It was about the club. It was about Willie. Um, the presenter Joe went down and got involved. It was a nice bit of fun. But he said to me a couple of weeks ago when it went out on TV, he's like, do you know my granddaughter every morning when she wakes up, now she's two years old, says, where's Granda? And they have to put the TV on. And they put on iPlayer and Willie comes on. And then every night before she goes to bed, they put Willie on TV for her because that's what gets her comfortable and gets her to sleep. And I was kind of like, that's probably the loveliest story I've heard out of everything I've worked on. And it was a very small part of, of, a, of a bigger show. But it was, you know, just the fact that you can give people those little moments and you know something that his granddaughter clings to now is like seeing her granddad on tv which i just think is the sweetest thing i've ever heard you know mm -hmm. so I, it kind of changed for me it was like i kind of focused more on those stories and you know I, I i tend not to hold criticism for too long anyway so you know after a while i forget about it but those kind of stories i'm like well that's that's why you do what you do isn't it like that's absolutely to give people those moments and you know the two the two-year-old who's my biggest fan apparently for for, for the documentaries i made yeah so you work in the bbc and um i want to understand when you i mean it's it's an iconic institution you know i think globally uh, when you walk through the door you know did you feel given your prior experience that you were accomplished and secure enough in yourself that you could just go in make a space for yourself um, or was the, that insecurity that, you know, I'm the new guy, um, did you feel intimidated in any way? And how long did it take before you found that confidence that you were where you were supposed to be or that you belonged? Oh, like, you know, it was definitely imposter syndrome. You know, like, I think everybody can relate to that today. But, um, you know, I'd done a lot of work for the BBC, but through independent companies and then through mm -hmm. my own company as well. Um, but getting the job, I was kind of like, oh, this is real now. You know, this is like, you, you know, you're getting a salary to to do what you've wanted to do for all your life. So then, yeah, it was just those kind of moments where I was like, oh, I, like I need to find my feet here. I need to, it, it, you know, it did, it took a while, um, but it felt strange. I still, I still almost don't feel like I've had the full experience of working for the BBC because I started in lockdown. Okay. So my first, you know, my first couple of months were literally proper lockdown of sat at home on the laptop and just saw faces who I, I wouldn't meet for another year so that took that took quite a while to get used to but everyone there was you know so helpful and so supportive and um once the kind of worked you know I went in through a different kind of department but once they worked out the documentary was the route that I that I wanted to go down and had made documentaries they very quickly moved me over towards that department and you know I've, I've had help from like producers um who've 20 or 30 years experience and it's just soaking all that in i think when, when i was younger it was probably a wee bit like no i can do this myself i don't really need advice you know i think that's the arrogance that you have when you're young but now it's just like you know trip feeding everything you know and getting that advice and sitting in edit booths with experienced executive producers and just seeing how they work you know i, I learn more from working with certain producers like in, in a month than i have four or five years um, just because of their experience and 
this is how you tell stories and this is exactly what you need to get to um mm. and you know I, I think as much as people call it an art form i think it's a very mathematical format when it comes to making things it's like one plus one equals two and this is like if you have these elements this is how you make a, a good documentary and you're hoping that the characters then will bring the heart and bring the life to it but um I've, I, yeah i've learned so much that's probably a bit waffly from your actual question well, no, but... I, you've raised something that i find quite interesting because you've said that it's mathematical you know there's a there's a method to make a documentary there's clearly a blueprint you know documentary is nothing new it's been done it's been done wonderfully um how do you ensure that your own dna is injected into it how do you ensure that ali mckenzie your ideas that personal touch that um perhaps a new and novel way of of thinking your way is you know you make your stamp on on that project because i think as I've said, there, there, there is a, a very clear idea of how a documentary can be made. You hit those pillars along the way. That tells your story. Um, but how do you ensure that, I suppose, that it has your touch? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one. There, you know, I've made documentaries in the past, and people have said that they didn't even see the credits. They were just like, I just knew it was one of your films. And... I find that I find that really weird because it's like how how did you know? Um, and I suppose you just develop a style, and it's again like I always refer back to the music with it. But it's kind of like once you hear a singer's voice or you hear a couple of chords, you can tell that's that artist. Um, for me, I suppose it's probably in the relationships that I build with people. I, I think that's that's kind of like my unique uh, aspect, you know, and, and it's getting getting to know them. And building mm -hmm. up a rapport with them that they feel ultimately comfortable. And I said earlier about it's the work you do away from the camera. If I if I have a documentary commission or I'm working on it, and you know, and everyone will do this, but you'll do research calls. So you'll go and either meet the person or you'll pick up the phone to them. But it's just having that rapport and making people feel comfortable. And I think once you make them feel comfortable, that's when you get the best out of them. Um, and I, you know, I would pride myself on when I'm not every every single job because it's like everything else where some days you've got bad days but mm -hmm. i think that when i'm on form and when i feel good and when the contributor's feeling good and there's just a good chemistry that you get something unique out of them and you know you'll get them to open up and, and talk honestly um so that's probably the closest to that i, I really don't know how, what, what other unique aspects you know visually maybe there's a certain style that i've um, kind of employed in the past that that I really like, but that's probably as as far as I go. I I don't. I suppose that worst, that's yeah, what I was person to ask questions like that because I ne I never even think about it. You know, I just kind of go and do it, and I don't really think of the art arty side of it. I just think of it very logically of like this is what I need to do. Mm, yeah, you, you hit the needle on the head. That, that's essentially the word I was looking for. Is your your style? How do you ensure that that's embedded in your work? Um, but again, that can be done visually, um, you know, the camera work and stuff. And But I respect because in telling a very human story, I think what sets you apart, and you've said it, is your relationship with people, um, which is admirable. Um, well, what, you know, sorry, I, I suppose music as well is, is something that I've, that would I'll probably say, yeah. set, it, set it aside because music is, uh, I, I would like to think I'm, I know my music very well. And from working on documentaries in the past, particularly the mod scene, it was just pure immersion in, in 60s music and soul music and all that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've really, I always 
pride myself on being able to find the right song to fit the emotion of the scene and not just rely on generic, you know, commercial tracks, which is something I, I don't like. Um, so I've always prided myself on being able to get the music and kind of, because what you're dealing with is, you know, so many different layers of, you're, you're dealing with the video, you're dealing with music, you're dealing with sound, and you're putting that all together and making pe people feel something essentially. So I like being able to manipulate all those layers, but music definitely is something that I've, I've probably used in the past. I think, and I've only seen the, the, the New York City documentary um, in the last couple of days, and music was very central and very key, I think, to caption certain emotion. Um, I've seen pictures of you, and, and I kind of gathered from pictures of you kind of your style, and I can almost envision what kind of music you like, and I think that was very aptly captured in the documentary. I think stylistically the music kind of matched your DNA, if that's what? fair. Yeah, Gareth and myself were, were big music heads. So when it came to making a documentary together, it was literally like the first thing we talked about was like, what music are we going to put into this? Once we had discussed the story, um, you know, and, and Gareth is like, he's a music aficionado when it comes to things. Uh, like I think I know what stuff and Gareth could tell you the record producer on it and where it was recorded and what time of day he's at, you know, he goes into that depth. So when we sat together, I mean, Here We Are was a lyric from an Oasis song as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that was something that not many people really picked up on, but for both of us it was kind of like it summed up where Nuri was at the time but it was also nice to give a little nod so yeah. uh, Gareth was definitely a massive help when it came to soundtracking that. Um, you've been how long have you been at the BBC because I want to understand um, who there or perhaps more than one person who's had the biggest impact um, and where have you gained the biggest learnings? So I, I've been in, in the BBC for three years three years now as a, as a staff member and I, th I think over that time like I've worked with so just so many talented producers and even execs you know and I, I think the biggest impact that most of them have had is just giving you free reign and just saying like once, once you've explained everything this is what we're going to do it's just like go and make it and mm -hmm. You know, that's something that that's really nice and, and I suppose liberating as well because you spend most of your life trying to make ideas as I suppose logistical as as possible and pragmatic you know a very pragmatic approach and being like how do we make this for as little money how do we make this you know whereas they're just like okay that's what we want to do let's go and make it and they give you that advice and um I've worked with so many producers but you know like uh Johnny Muir was one of the first producers I worked with when I went in there on a documentary in the Shankle and it was great to see how he worked as an obstock filmmaker and recently worked with Gemma uh, Cunningham who was, who was an exec on the series that we worked on and she was just brilliant in her approach as well and kind of how she looked at things slightly differently and would explain to you okay this is why we want to do it this way and it just opens you up because you've got your own kind of set ways of doing things mm -hmm. um but as I said earlier on, it's just like drip feeding from everybody and getting little bits of advice and seeing what works for you. And some things might not work for you, but you know, definitely getting advice from Gemma and sitting down and watching rushes and being like, okay, that worked because of this, but you could do this and that would help you in this aspect, which is something I find very helpful. Uh, and this is kind of a, a broad and open-ended question and a bit of fun, I hope, but in the film industry or documentary, whatever it might be, who out there would you like to work with and why? What about them appeals to you? Oh, it's so difficult. 
it's so difficult because I, I, I kind of am so out of the loop of things as well. You know, like um, th there was one filmmaker who I really admired and then ended up working with. Um, his name was Jay Bulger. He's an, a New York filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And he produced a, a Netflix documentary called Counterpunch, which was about the world of boxing. And at the time, I was pitching an idea about boxing and, you know, professional boxers going into retirement. And somehow, I don't know, like, I just saw his name on the end of the credits and found him on Twitter and followed him. And, like, and he only had, uh, like, a thousand followers or something. And I just sent him a message and I was just like, look, um, really enjoyed the documentary. I'm working on something myself find it really like inspirational how because it was a proper obstock you know he really got in there with the boxers to the point where they were in hotel rooms throwing bags down when they lost and he captured it all and i was just the questions i had for him were more like how did you get in there how did you get that access how did you capture that and like i mean he came back to me just with reams and reams of answers and just advice on how to make a documentary um and that really that really caught me because I was like, "Wow, like you know, this is a Netflix filmmaker, and he, he's taking the time to help me out." And then, as it transpired, he actually got in touch with me because he was coming to Belfast to do a bit of work with McCollin, and mm. I was working in the world of boxing and doing a lot of content at the time. Um, and he got in touch and said, "I need a, another shooter. Do you want to come up and help me out?" And I ended up meeting him in person and, and doing a bit of work with him. I've done work since. I haven't spoken to him in about three years now. Like I've kind of drifted a bit, but. That was, you know, probably the moment I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool that documentary filmmakers are accessible. Whereas, like, you know, you're not going to be able to reach out to Martin Scorsese for a bit of advice or or Lynn Ramsey or Ken Loach. I, I doubt you could get in touch with these people. But documentary filmmakers, I just like the fact that they are just regular people, but making documentaries about regular people too. I wanted to then touch upon, I guess, your collective experiences in making um, documentary or film. Have there, what, what moments have been surreal, those kind of pinch me moments where even you've kind of stood back and thought, oh, my God, this is incredible? Um, I, I suppose that, that's a hard one because I, I tend not to get, like, too overwhelmed with things or ever really sit back. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose if, if I was thinking, you know, there are moments where when I was working on search and you're interviewing people about big searches they've been on and you you know your job is to take them back in their story and get them thinking about the process because i filmed their entire process the interview afterwards is to go back and retrace the steps but for some of them there were just connections with a certain story of someone that they had saved or someone that they had helped and it's, it's just come to me my first night on the search i was you know green to the whole thing it was March, it was snowing, it was freezing cold, and we were out trying to find uh, a lady who had dementia and had left the house, and her husband couldn't find her, and no one could find her. So I got the phone call at 10 o'clock at night, got down to Bangor, and basically spent till half four in the morning searching for this lady. And then we got a phone call, and I, I just got into the, the truck with the, the search operator, and he got a phone call to say, we have someone matching your description, and she's at a bus stop. And it was half four in the morning. We just flew down the road and jumped out of the car. And the search operator went over to this lady and, and said her name. And she, is this who you are? And she was like, yes, that's me. But I was filming the whole thing at the time. And she got into the car beside me and in the back seat. And I was just filming. But she just reminded me at the time of my own nanny. And I was like, if my nanny was sitting out 
at this time in the morning. I hope it's done without finding her. And that moment for me, when I said earlier about making sure that you capture it so the audience can relate to it, I, I almost felt like dropping the camera, making sure she was all right. And then I remembered that she's, I was surrounded by people whose job that was. So my job was to actually just capture that. So that's probably the biggest pinch yourself moment that I, I've probably had. Do you find when you're that close to something that you're filming, do you feel innately those moments of joy, sadness? I mean, like that season-long documentary with Newry City. Well, I mean, I can't answer for you, but I would imagine given what you'd invested in it and over the length of time you had done it, like that last game when they beat Armagh City, you know, to to gain promotion. I mean, did, did you feel that sense of joy just as much as any other fan? Or... Do, do you feel yourself a little bit removed from it, given that you're you're working on it? I think I, I f probably that time with Arma, I felt it more as in the film's complete. So mm -hmm. felt the delight that way. Now, I'm, I'm a New York City fan. Um, I went to games before, started making that. Not as many, uh, admittedly, but now like I never miss a game. So now I can't imagine going to a game and filming it because I wouldn't be able to connect with it, like as in just mm -hmm. watching the match. But if I have a camera in my hand, you know, I, I find it very easy to separate okay. and and not get wrapped up in the emotion of anything. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, I, I filmed a documentary about my wife boxing, and even in those moments, like, where usually I'd be nervous going to see her fight, I was just zoned. I was in the zone. I was, like, kind of dialed in, filming it, making sure that I had the coverage that I needed and ultimately just knew that she'd be all right. And um, if I captured it properly, it would do her story justice. So, yeah, I'd say I never kind of get too immersed um, I, I understand what I'm filming and understand the joy that's going on, but it's just constantly just in that mode of the, you need to capture this to so keep focused, you know? Mm -hmm. I wanted to then talk about, um, because when you do something, that fly in the wall, that immersive, intimate documentary style of filming where you're embedded with a team or, or a group of people or whatever it might be, what are the parameters or what are the lines that, that you try not to cross because or or do those lines exist because like when you do the Newry City thing for example um, you're that fly in the wall but you obviously don't want to impact negatively in any way you know by overstepping your, your mark or, or whatever that might be or on the flip side do you and the club have to fully commit to all access I film what I want um, I mean is there clear boundaries for you or how, how does that work? Yeah, I think that just, particularly now because I've, I've done it for so long, there are clear boundaries. Yes, you want to build up a rapport and you want to build up a relationship with that person on camera, but you're not there to be their, their friend. Mm -hmm. you're, you know, they, you might be telling their story and they're allowing you to tell their story, but it's you that's telling it. So you need to find out the right way of doing that. Um, and, you know, like I build up rapports with a lot of people, but ultimately you're there for a job and they look at it the same way as well, you know. But there are, like, that's day-to-day. -day. Certain jobs, like the New York City one, was a lot more difficult because it got so personal with Darren. And, you know, you almost became his confidant for the season where mm -hmm. he was going through a lot of stuff even before his, his father had died. You know, I think he had doubts whether or not he wanted to continue being a manager, he would tell me things uh, like when I would shoot an interview with him after a training session when he was knackered, you know, because he worked a full-time job, he had four kids, all these sorts of things. And, you know, that was probably the closest 
that you've got to overstepping it, but not overstepping in a bad way of just being mm-hmm. like, you know, becoming more of an ear than actually being uh, being there with the camera. But you always just have to remember that what you were there for. Um, but what like what I'll often do is with the likes of Darren after one of our on-camera conversations is we just turn the cameras off and just sit and have the crack after or sit and have a coffee and talk about what we've talked about. But it was always making sure that you, you've got what you came for, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it is it's, it is hard. I think a lot of people understand the kind of lines. You can be very friendly. You can be very, you know, amenable. You're there to, to make every, you're there to make their life easier. They're, they're trying to help you to tell the story, but ultimately, you know, I'll be on to the next project next week. And, once that goes out, I'll be in touch. But you probably never speak to those people again, just naturally. You know, it's just kind of life moves on. Uh, I would imagine you, you've become pretty adept at uh, just blending into the background when you need to um, and capturing capturing what you need to. Of, of, of the whole process, I mean, we all have our, our strengths and weaknesses, and I'm sure you might see it of yourself in terms of your ability and skill set. Of the whole process, everything from directing, editing, producing, whatever it might be, camera work, what do you see as those parts that perhaps you don't enjoy as much? And what aspect of it all do you enjoy the most? I, I still personally, when I go out shooting, still think that I'm not doing it right. And I think this is this is a big thing. Like I read uh, Louis Theroux's autobiography and he said the same. It's like, it's just that, that feeling of every time you go out, am I prepared? Do I know what I'm doing? And it's the self-doubt, which I think mm-hmm. you ultimately need because you're asking yourself those questions, you know? Um, what what I enjoy most, and it's kind of a contradiction because I enjoy the aspect of getting people to talk and getting to know them. But I'm also, like, uh, people might not believe, I'm also quite shy in a way as well. And would get anxious about going in to meet people that I've never met before. And it it takes an awful lot of effort for me. And I would be exhausted after going in and, you know, often with the documentary, you'd be shooting by yourself. You could be doing sound and, and shooting yourself and producing all in one go. So I could be going into groups of three or four people and, you know, trying to entertain those people and trying to make them feel comfortable while focusing on what you're doing and not get overwhelmed with, are the sound levels right? Is the light okay? Is the camera all right? Is that person not giving me what I need? What question do I need next? That can be very, very overwhelming. And particularly going in and talking to those groups of people, I find genuinely exhausting, which is why I like doing quite a lot of legwork beforehand so that when I do start rolling, we have that that relationship on camera. So I probably find that one of the toughest things. Um, but at the same time, it is probably one of the most rewarding things. Um, but I, I'll never be fully confident as a shooter because I know a hundred cameramen that are better than me and I'll never be fully confident as an editor because I know a hundred editors that are better than me. But, you know, I just always bring it back to if I can make a two minute piece or a 30 minute piece that connects with someone, I suppose it doesn't matter what the skill set is. And it's, it's something we actually did in work last week where they just give us a trial to go out and shoot on a phone for a week. And it took it stripped away all of the, the necessity for kit for you know bag fulls of lights it was just go out with a phone and a microphone and see what you can get and mm-hmm. it just it took the the kind of shackles off in a way and it was all about the story and it's one of the pieces that i think i'm probably the proudest of in a long time um i mean you talked about self-doubt and 
I have that in bagfuls. I mean, and but I, I'm going to ask you the same question: Can that self doubt be a driving force in order that you do push on and pursue aspirations and things that you want to achieve? Because for me, when I thought about doing this, part of me was intrigued and interested and curious. Like yourself, I'm pretty shy, um, so it's difficult. Here we here we are in a podcast, and mm-hmm. I mean, I could have chosen the option where I would just have the person I'm talking to on screen, and I'm removed from it. But I wanted to push past that insecurity and that self doubt, and make myself do something that I wanted to do but was fe- fearful of doing. Do you find that that self doubt can be a, a positive uh, force? I, yeah, I think so. I think it, it keeps you in check as well, doesn't it? Um, and as I said, it, it makes you answer the questions of, well, why am I doubting myself? What is it that I'm not prepared for? Um, am I, you know, am I not ready for things? I've always been found more comfort behind the camera because I don't particularly like being in, in front of the camera. I've never really done a podcast. Damien, this is like the first of, of actually talking. Like I, I tend not to talk about my, my career or anything. I just get on with it, you know, and it's like um, I, I tend, I like just kind of, being in the background, which is, I think, why I like making observational documentaries because you are the background. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're just there. Um, but I do, I do think that the self self doubt is a motivating factor. I'm very motivated in that my my I suppose my my work drive, the drive that I have for working every day, is just something that I just wake up and just like, right, let's go, let's let's get working, let's do things. And I think I'm lucky to have that because a lot of people might not have that kind of motivation. Mm-hmm. And that almost just drives you through the self-doubt phase of being like, well, we're here anyway. Like we're in a room and there's four people waiting to be interviewed and you've got all the kits, so you're going to have to do this regardless of whether you're feeling it. But, you know, I suppose you have to do, you have to step out of your comfort zone. And that's something that it took me a long time. Like I used to feel very embarrassed, I would say, bringing a camera out and interviewing people. And like even yet, I'm still very self-conscious about asking questions to people because I'm not a journalist and I haven't gone through journalism and it's not my skill set. And it's one area that I, I can connect with people. Yes. But I always think I sound stupid when I'm asking questions, but you know, maybe it's the simplicity of it that, that works. I, I'm not really sure, but honestly, every day, like I was on a shoot yesterday and I was thinking to myself the same, same things that I've been thinking for 10 years. And, but yet yeah, I'm 10 years more experienced. I'm 10 years, like, you know, of skill sets built up 10 years more confidence but still like i think that goes through but i think it's, it's a healthy thing to have that sometimes but it's just not I, I wouldn't kind of let it lead me it's the the motivation to get to get the work done is what keeps you going absolutely you know i think over time and, and with age and maturity you, you learn to suppress it and well perhaps not suppress it in that you're kind of forcing it down but you learn to manage it in order that you, you can be productive and do things that perhaps ordinarily you mightn't do because you're fearful of them. Um, and that's certainly the case of me. And that's why I wanted to push through and continue with this. And I've, I've genuinely enjoyed it. So when I look back, I'm confident enough that the fear has not hindered me and stopped me from doing something that, that I generally want, wanted to pursue. But um, no, I think you're doing a great job with it, Damien. And, you know, it's always, it's given a platform to people and putting them out there and just to hear their stories because I think I think we said this just off off air, but it's like, you know, 
you have friends like Gareth's a good friend of mine and we don't know what each other does kind of day to day you know we, we never really catch up on that well what were you working on today but when you get back in a month or two and it's like oh I worked on this or he's been doing this it's like well your job's really interesting but you almost just take it for granted because it's your friend and you know mm-hmm. you're just like okay we'll talk about football or anything else but when I heard his podcast with you I was like oh there's parts of his journey I didn't even understand and know so being able to hear that through your podcast is fantastic so it's giving people uh, a good platform and champion in yuri which is which is something i'm very passionate about as well so well done with it thank you very much i mean what i've i suppose i find most rewarding and people have told me is that they felt quite comfortable to open up and share their story um so i hope in some part i'm quite laid back and relaxed so i hope that w- that were to be the case um i want to talk about Obviously, you have your professional life and what you're doing with the BBC. But if, if we look at yourself personally and personal projects and what you hope to achieve and capture in documentary film, is there a project or series of projects that, that you hope to to ultimately get on film? Um, yeah, I just I love football. And everyone who knows me just knows that I'm just obsessed with football. So I would be more than happy to make football content all day, every day for the rest of my life. And it's one of the reasons why we made the Nuri doc was to put local football on the map and to mm-hmm. let people see that, you know, you don't need to travel to England or Scotland to get a fix that's on your front door. And it's something that I would love to do all over Ireland. You know, I, I'm a bit old for it, but I have a TikTok account where I travel around and make football videos. And mm-hmm. it's gotten quite a, a, like a nice, nice following. And there's been like 2 million views on it, which... I was always like, this is just, it's crazy, you know, for the videos that I'm doing now. And then you see a video of like, of a dog barking, like it's 10 million views. But but for me, it's just like football content. I would love to just be making documentaries about Irish football, like North and South, just traveling and, and, you know, telling the stories of the clubs and of rivalries. That's something that I, I kind of do my spare time anyway, but you know, that's, as I said earlier on, I have a job and and filmmaking is still my hobby. So that's kind of what I like doing. And I suppose reaching out to football clubs and, and telling stories there. That's something I, I, I thought about. And um, I wanted to understand kind of your, your perception. Why do you think that sport, and if we take football, for example, why do you think it is such a good conduit or medium to tell a very human story? I, I think... I think people are at their most exposed in sport, whether they're playing or whether they're in the stands. It's probably the, the time where their guard is let down and you can get moments like I would experience moments at football that I never get the same level of like joy or uh, or sheer adrenaline anywhere else in, in life, you know, and mm-hmm. just just moments that stay with you like I when I think back to certain years, I just think straight to a match that I was at and to a place where I was with, with my mates. Um, that's, that's something I've always just wanted to capture is why do people love that so much? And I ended up falling hook, line and sinker for it myself and, and I'm doing the same thing. But I just think in the sporting arena, particularly football, and I worked in boxing for a very long time uh, and I've worked with, you know, world champion boxers and been in the changes rooms with them. But I, I've just always been interested in the quiet moments, you know, the quiet before the storm kind of thing. And uh, and Carl Frampton's documentary, I, I was filming a little bit on it, but I remember his coach sent him at the time, 
cool head in a hot kitchen. And like those little moments, I was just like, that's amazing that in a changing room, he's just breathing normally. His heart rate was low. And outside there was 18,000 fans in Windsor Park, you know, just wrecking the place, ready to go and ready for a big fight. And it's just those juxtapositions, I think, are what really interests me in sport. Um, because as a fan, you get carried away with the, the whole kind of like, you know, the atmosphere and the excitement. But there's the two sides to it that the people coming out are actually focused and ready to do a job. And because if they treated if they treated the game like fans, you would never get anywhere. So I've always loved that juxtaposition of the athletes and the fans. Um, and then just getting to know why fans love it so much. You know, what is it that makes you tick? Like, why do you spend all your money at the weekend going to follow a team full of 11 boys from the local area? And what do you get out of it that you can't get anywhere else? Those are the kind of questions that I've, I've always asked people and, um, and like to capture, I suppose. Yeah, I think in many respects, it, it, it's that shared experience. I mean, when you, when you think back of some of those wonderful moments, it's very often with someone, whether it be your father, brother, sister, daughter, friend. Um, in many respects, the fans endure and suffer and are related along with the team. And I think, like you said, you find people at their most exposed because I suppose they show emotion that in any other setting they wouldn't. Mm -hmm. You know, would that be extreme sadness, frustration, incredible joy uh, and i think when you capture something like that on on film uh, we, we we can all relate to it um so with that being said um i wanted to also ask then with respect to 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 film and, and documentary i mean we see in, in the film industry now as it relates to big franchises and stuff like that you know your marvels and stuff how difficult is is it for independent film uh, to find space for itself um, or, or or is it difficult for independent film and documentary to find a space for itself in terms of funding getting the right platform I know in the beginning you said with respect to Netflix more and more people are looking for that kind of content but if you could just give me your opinion yeah I think it's kind of double-edged that isn't it because now more than ever, filmmaking is more accessible because you can shoot something on your phone and have it uploaded to millions of people within seconds on TikTok. Um, so it is more accessible. But then is there like a, a true independent cinema anymore where like in the 80s and 90s there really was where you had films like Clerks coming through, which was proper indie cinema dogma. The likes of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon working hard on films like that was proper indie cinema. I think so now all the indies are owned by the big companies, aren't they? And it's like... Yeah. so are you actually watching proper independent cinema anymore? But I, I think it's important for how things have changed is that, yes, it is accessible that you can go out and shoot and anyone can do this and upload it to YouTube and connect with an audience. And it doesn't matter who that audience are anymore because, you know, the generation that are coming through aren't necessarily watching 90 minute docs anymore or 90 minute films. They're watching shorter content. And I think co content overall is getting shorter and people are more focused on that. So, I think you know it, there's an audience for almost everything now and yes it's it's probably more difficult than ever to stand out within that audience and it's, it's something that people probably struggle with mostly because you'll watch a great video and then flick on to the next one and forget that pretty instantly but i think there's something in if you can hold people's attention for whatever length of time it is that they've invested in your film i think that's a, it's a great achievement 
and it's kind of like in the world where you know youtube videos are the views are in the millions and billions but mm -hmm. you, you forget that a thousand views is a lot of views in a video like for a thousand people to actually put eyes onto your video and invest time in it, it's a big thing so i suppose it's all relative to where people are and to what they want to produce but to get any kind of investment in something that you're making is you know i i think that's a very important thing and you know as, as we kind of move on in the industry and you're making documentaries but we've always got an eye to the shorter content too and thinking you know i think eventually we're going to have to it's almost gone full full circle where it's like we're going to be producing maybe short films again to try to gauge people's interest and and to tap into their audience do you think and is it something that you in the industry and other people like you are are you very conscious of the fact that people's attention spans are much smaller much lower and what kind of impact is that having in terms of the content that the likes of the BBC are putting out there? Is the content intensely becoming shorter or is there still room for feature length uh, documentary? Oh, there'll always be room for feature length documentaries and there'll always be room for 30 minute docs or series. But I think the great thing is that everyone has just engaged with the social media aspect of it and they've realized, okay, if we want, if we want a millennial audience to sit down and watch this, this documentary what we're going to have to do is put together a, a reel of the best moments to catch their imagination and think well that was great let's get let's actually invest in that more so you know you're getting more of a multi-platform um you, yeah you get more of multi-platform buy-in you're putting clips out in tiktok or you're putting clips out here and there that people are actually like that that looks interesting and i think the clever thing is it's such a flooded market and companies like netflix and amazon seem to be like the flag bearers in it but it's, it's, you know, you stand out again, it's the story that it always comes back to. And it doesn't matter what length the story is, if it's going to be engaging to an audience, then that's that's the most important thing. Um, and then you have the right team around you to actually get it out there to, to the audience that you want to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well. My, my attention span, and sometimes I actively give myself a kick up the arse and say, enough of the short content, it's been a while since you've watched the movie or a full-length documentary. I'll make myself do it because when I do, I genuinely enjoy it. Um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm as bad. Like I'll end up sitting watching reruns of The Office, and you know, instead of actually like reading for half an hour or doing something yeah. that I should be, I just go back to the old comfortable programs that I've always liked. You yeah, know, that's something I should do is like explore a bit more and, and watch some more stuff. But yeah, you know, when, when you are so busy, you just want comfortable television at times, don't you? Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I mean, I remember a time when I'm probably no busier than I was when I was a teenager. I think there's always time to make that commitment to, to documentary or, or movie or reading. But like yourself, I find myself watching uh, outtakes from the office on bloopers because yeah. <laughs> that's all the kind of kind of memory or uh, attention span that I'm willing to willing to commit to it. Um, I wanted to talk then, just if we go back, because I'd read a couple of articles as it relates to, to the documentary that you and Gareth put out there. Um, obviously, it was received with wide acclaim, and I seen that it was nominated for an award. What was the award? And I mean, when you look back now in hindsight, would you have changed the narrative of that story, or what would you change about it? Uh, I think the award, it, it won a couple of awards. Oh, one, oh, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. won a couple of awards. Um, I can't remember the names of them exactly, but I think the big one that, um, 
that it was nominated for. There was an American film festival and it won like a, a, an award of merit or something, which meant that it got to like the last 10. And that was the one that we were really thrilled at because it kind of went to an international audience as opposed to just Ireland and the UK. Um, but I suppose when you look back on it now, like Gareth and myself talk about this all the time, where it's just like, you know, you would change so much, but then I wouldn't really change a thing at the same time because it was a product of its time. It, it was a product of a lot of a lot of hours, a lot of hard work went into it. So it's just now with hindsight, you'd be like, well, I know how I would tell the story and this is the way I would do it. But then maybe the way we did it was the raw way that it needed to be told. It was kind of like raw and, you know, uh, I suppose not glamorous in the way that the football club was at the time. You know, there was no glamour about the football club and our documentary was just raw like that as well. So I think it's a moment in time that captured it perfectly. Like I, I do watch it back and I, I remember watching it back. Uh, it went to Belfast Film Festival and I sat with Gareth watching it and I was like, oh, I've changed so much. Because that, at that point, that was like seven months after we had initially screened it. So at that point, you had enough breathing space to be like, oh, I've changed it. But um, I, I was so happy with it. And one thing I suppose I kind of regret is that and I just didn't know how to do this at the time but was how to work in more of the fans and actually get the fan story into it um but I, I just didn't really know what I was doing in that regard so um I, I focused focused very much on Darren but I think you know looking at it like cr critically now I could do with breaks and I could do with little looks at at fans and other people around the club um but working with Gareth on it at the time like I knew Gareth I had worked in the reporter um as as all my work experience when I was in tech and Gareth was a great help he shafted me in that I had to do all the Caribbean league stuff on a Monday morning so I would come in and that's the job he gave me and he would kind of look over it and read back and give me feedback so we, we kept a good friendship and but the one good thing to really come out of it was that me and him got probably close as mates you know and uh, we spent so much time together like, and I think I was 24, 25 when I was making it. And I remember one night I was out literally all night at a friend's birthday and had forgotten that Gareth was coming out to edit at eight in the morning. And I literally got in at seven and Gareth walked in and just woke me up. It was like, you better get working here. I've come out. So, we, you know, it was brilliant because we were mates. We were able to have that kind of that uh, honesty with each other. And I think it, it worked out well. And, you know, Gareth's not behind the door when it comes to things. If he doesn't like it, He'll just say, no, I don't like it. And he's often the first person I would go to with ideas. Um, mm. I said, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And he'll just tell you straight. And if he thinks it's a good idea, he'll be on it. And if he thinks it's a bad idea, he'll let you know. So uh, having that kind of working relationship with each other really helped when it came to, to making the doc. Because as we were going along, we were able to change things and and talk about it, you know. But ultimately, what went to the screen that night in the Canal Court was something we were both very proud of. Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand then, and this is probably a very personal thing and it's probably different for everybody, but give, given what you do, where's the greatest joy in it? I mean, is it at the end when you've you know, polished it, put it together, you're able to sit down and watch it? What's that experience like for you? Or is the greater joy for you the process, the journey, the filming, the interaction? I, I, I would say the greatest joy comes in the post-production whenever you've you, you know you may you maybe spent a couple of weeks or a couple of months making something shooting something and you'll get to the edit and you cut it together and you'll see a sequence and it might just be a two to five minute sequence but you're like it works okay it works i got the feeling 
that that it, you know that I wanted to have. And the the hard thing I think, Damien, is when you're making something. There was someone said a great quote to me one time, and they're like, "You never laugh at a joke as hard as you do as the first time that you heard it." Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's the same when it comes to like making a film or making a short. It's always remembering why you wanted to make it in the first place, and that gets lost along the way because you get so fed up with the hours you put into it, standing in fields soaking wet to capture it. You know all of that kind of grits away at it. But when you get to the post production stage and you see a sequence for the first time. You're seeing what the audience are going to see, and you you almost remember, okay, that's why I wanted to make it. You know, I've got the feeling that worked, or sometimes it doesn't work, and you have to go and rework it. But often you'll see it, and you'll be like, okay, we're laughing now, and that's and that's when you get to the point, I suppose, in in your career where you're confident enough that you can go out and and get that. Um, but that's definitely, I still would when I see edits back. I'd still be like, oh, that's brilliant. That's those are the exact moments that that I like. The shooting part of it I find very difficult, and and that's a slog at times. And editing can be a slog, but whenever you cut through all of the sync and you've got the interviews cut down and you see something, you're like, okay, we're onto something here. Do you do you think you have a natural ability to tell a story, or is that something that that you've developed over time? I, I still think I'm not the best at it at times. You know, I still think I really struggle with it, um, but. It's something you have to work on constantly because every story is different and it's how you tell that. But there are so many better storytellers uh, and, and people that I've worked with since I've even joined the BBC are just great storytellers. And um, But the main thing is you work with a team of people who know how to get the best out of the story that you want to tell because it's not just one person. You know, It might be your idea, but you know, working with a great editor can can really make the difference in a project. And I've worked with editors in the past who've just taken it from being okay to being unreal. And you're looking at it thinking, is that my footage? Like, how did they how did they cut that out of that? You know, so it's it's knowing the right people to work with and knowing the right people to get the best out of you and, and the work that you're producing. I, I, I've wondered because obviously you have your North Star, which is, is the, the end point and that's what you're aiming for. Um, have you had an experience where you've set out to, to capture a story and it's ended up very different than what you originally set out to achieve? And ultimately, were you satisfied with that? Yeah, I think every story starts out with the way that you want it to. And um, you'll, you'll sit and you'll script out what you think is going to happen. And you'll be set on that and you'll, you'll sit with your exec and they'll be like, okay, I, I like the looks of that. That's great. But then whenever you start actually making something, nothing ever works like that because you're putting in elements that you can't you know, plan for, which is people. And they have their own personalities and they've got their own styles or they've got, you know, they might not win the fight that you need them to or they, they might lose the match that you thought they were or whatever that might be or they might hit a wrong note when they're supposed to be singing. And it's dealing with those elements. And it, But it's, it's always just been... You know, carefully planned enough for almost every outcome of knowing if if A happens, then we know that this can happen. If B happens, we know that we're prepared for that. And I suppose it's always just being prepared to capture it. But it has happened in the past with certain things. Um, like I said, with the Nuri Doc, it was always the worry that they weren't going to win that game, and you know, it could have petered out. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I, I can't think of anything just off the top of my head that was, you know, that had a massive, massive kind of impact on it. But it, it literally happens every day when you go out to shoot. Things just don't work the way they're supposed to work. And no, no matter how much you plan, 
it, it, but it's just being, I suppose, adaptable to every situation and knowing that you can change things up. Yeah, uh, I mean, I suppose the thoughts just come to me. I mean, you're dealing with people. There, there, there's so many variables. But I, I can imagine an occasion where you're pursuing a particular narrative or a particular story, and along the way you find that actually something else would perhaps be the better story. Do you have to ignore those inclinations and, and stick stick stay the course and capture what you originally hoped to? Or is, is it that flexibility in, in your industry to say, you know what, let's redirect this, you know, th there's another story to be told here? Yeah, I think that probably happens all the time. And, you know, where something will will appear during filming. Uh, but again, it's, you know, it's very much a, a process where you'll go back and you'll talk to people and be like, this is happening. Should we pursue this? Should we pursue that? How, how do we approach this? So mm -hmm. th that's probably something that, you know, as an example, we worked on the, the Shankle documentary a few years ago about the bonfire. And it was all about, you know, young people in the area getting ready for the bonfire and the whole community coming together. But, you know, elements of it just didn't work out. The, some young people we started filming with then went and moved away for work and then we couldn't follow through with their story or whatever it might have been. And it was just being adaptable. But, you know, you've always got a great team of people behind you that you can ring and say, look, I need advice on this. What do you think? Um, and and then it, it just becomes a process of, of sitting with them and talking to them about how you're going to move forward. But uh, like I said, it's it's very it's, it's a massive team that goes into making films and documentaries. The crews are so much smaller than an actual film, but mm -hmm. you know it's it's integral. Every person who helps out on it plays a, a huge part in kind of getting it over the line because you are kind of so stripped back in in terms of the people that are working on it. So you have to be able to have that working relationship where you can go to someone and say, "I don't feel confident to this," or "That's not working. What can we do?" And there'll always be a way around it, you know. What, what do the next 12 months look like? Um, you probably can't, I guess, see, or maybe you can with, with respect to your professional career and, and I mean, the news and, and everything like that changes uh, so quickly. But as to personal projects and what you hope to work on, what's next for Ali McKenzie? Um, you know, I, th I think the long-term goal is just to, it, you know, our daily goals and work is to, to tell the best stories and and to get to get them to TV, you know. So it's, it's working up those ideas and and in twelve months' time, hopefully having something on television. Um, and it can happen so quickly that you know you come up with an idea tomorrow, and then it just goes into to development and trying to work that up. So like by the next twelve months, you know, it, it your success is kind of judged on can you get something to television, and that's that's what I look at is can you get something to television, and beyond that as well, I suppose it's can you get something that only gets the television that but then gets you know the people really buy into and really enjoy and could it be nominated those are the sorts of things you have to look at because you want to tell great stories but you want to tell them in the best way and that's what we're at we're in a very competitive field um where there's so many independent companies um and there's so many uh, broadcasters and you're competing with multi-million pound projects with with netflix uh, or you could compete with someone with an iphone on tiktok for attention but it's just, as I said, like it always comes back to can can you tell the story in the best possible way? And I think if you find the characters and the story thread, then then that could happen. So hopefully in the next 12 months, that, that's the case. Do you plan to pursue any independent projects um, in sport or anything like that? Do you have anything on the shelf personally that you would like to like to do? Oh, yeah. Like I go to football all the time and I've always got a camera in my hand. 
So th there will be a, probably a couple of things that I'll, I'll put up and cut because that keeps me sane, to be honest, you know, that keeps me, that's kind of like my outlet because, you know, with like, like any other job with work, you're sometimes working on something that might not be the most exciting thing that you've ever worked on. But I, my kind of, yeah, that, that keeps me sane is like going to football matches and filming things. And that's something that I've always, I always will do, I suppose. So just a couple more things I want to understand with respect to yourself and, and where you are in your life, um, professionally, personally, um, do you firmly believe that you are where you're supposed to be, you know, that you're comfortable where, where you, you are at the moment? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I chose to, to take this route. You know, I could, I could have chosen to stay in London and that would have been different. Or I could have chosen to stay in Japan at the time and even though I was only there for a couple of weeks, but I was offered work and I could have could have done that. But I, I chose to, to come back to Nuri because this is what I wanted to do. And, you know, so I, I don't ever think about what could have been or anything like that. I just, this is where I am now and this is what I've chosen to do. Um, and I, like, I thoroughly enjoy what I do. And I think like if you had told a 15 year old me that, you know, you'd be making a living at it, which is all I ever thought that I thought if I could make a living at this, I'd be successful. You know, I, I'd probably be, be delighted. So, uh, you know, I think I'm, yeah, I'm very happy. So what's, I mean, I'm very droll, but I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked this, I think more or less of everybody, but obviously each of our own perception or measure of, of success is very different. I mean, in your industry, awards would would be one measure of success but but for you what are some measures of success of your work i suppose you know success can be measured for us and can you get it to tv can you get a commission can you get it to there um but i you know it, it changes so much i without trying to be like too philosophical about it but hearing the story about willie's granddaughter was a success for me because you went out to make a piece about a man who has run all of his life and has inspired many people to do that. And you've got his little granddaughter who watches that piece over and over again. So someone's got enjoyment out of that. And that means more to me than I suppose anything else. And it sounds so silly because it's, it's, it's a short film and mm -hmm. it is what it is. But you know, that, that to me is successful because you make films to connect with people and that connected with someone. So that's a measure of success for me. You know, um, if you win awards in the future, that's all well and good, but you don't win that without that, that basic connection. So, you know, hopefully you can continue to do that. I mean, I've often thought of that. Um, you know, we generally don't like to put ourselves on a pedestal. And uh, when you look at your own life, you, you probably think to some degree that your life and my life and most ordinary people's lives quite unremarkable. But, I mean, if you look close enough, there's probably a very real story to be told for everyone. I mean, with someone with your talent and, and ability to tell a particular story, I think it's true to be said that you could capture a remarkable story from anyone. Um, and you, you've acquired a, an incredible skill set. I think it's very, very clear from the work that I've seen and even in that short Willie McCracken piece, I mean, I, I'm not even sure it's more than 10 minutes, but you, you've captured the essence of the man uh, and you've captured the essence of his life uh, running, um, which is amazing. It, it, do you find that challenging 
to essentially achieve what you've achieved in one hour to then capture that same emotion and journey in, in 10 minutes. How difficult is that? Oh, that's, it's, it's more difficult, yeah, flipping it the other way. So, you know, you learn how to tell short form content um, and then, sorry, there's kids screaming here, but you learn how to learn, uh, how to, to work with short form content and then as you grow, sustaining the story and developing those threads, that's a difficult thing. That's something that okay. hopefully I can learn over the next year. I, I haven't done a one hour yet. I've worked on, you know, three 30 minute uh, series. Um, so producing an hour and a half of content, but it's all very different. So, you know, a one hour is something I would like to look at in the future and hopefully it can sustain. But I, I suppose it's the same principle. It's just like if it's it's a very expensive real estate is is television and anything that's going to be on screen needs to have a value and needs to earn its place within that. So mm -hmm. everything that you produce needs to be of, of quality and needs to connect. And I think that's the key thing. So if you take those basic principles of storytelling and what is it about Willie's story that interests people and how do you sustain that and how do you develop that story, that's that I suppose that's a goal that I'll be looking to work on. So just to, to close, um, when you amass the body of work that you that you hope to put out there, what what are some things that you hope what's the common theme or narrative? and style that you hope to embed in your work that people will, will what do you think people will say about it that, that relates to you and your, your character? I, I think overall, um, like I come from a very working class family and was brought up in an estate, like very working class background. Um, and I think a lot of my stories come from the everyday people, like you said there, the everyday people kind of fascinate me because there's more characters in like in a street that I grew up in than, than you could meet anywhere else. And that's always fascinated me is telling those, you know, a little look into those lives. Um, and I think if you can kind of keep your roots and, and what interests you, first of all, to get into media and always kind of remembering that, you know, here's the stories I want to tell. Here's the people I want to focus on. And like a lot of my work and most of my, in fact, nearly every single document I've worked on has focused on working class people doing stuff and everybody thinks that their story is unremarkable but there's always something really interesting about you that someone will be like wow that's that's amazing i've never thought of that and you take for granted um so i suppose that's the element i always kind of want is that people can kind of see real life in in what you make and stay staying grounded to kind of what i was brought up in um and the world as as i kind of saw it when i was younger um because i like i always found my uncles in scotland the most fascinating people ever you know they were they were funny they were sharp uh they were ruthless and i've always like been interested in finding those people everywhere i've gone um yeah and you know what it's like when you go to london i just kind of look for those characters and those people that can that really stand out it's people who put themselves forward often aren't the the interesting people it's the ones who are reluctant that have something to say like i you know big big ricky gervais fan but carl pilkington came out of nowhere you know he was yeah. he was a producer pushing buttons and then they just realized that the world could just relate to that man because he's like everybody knows someone like him you know so that's something i've always liked yeah um i mean do you think in some respects as a documentary producer film filmmaker whatever that your perception is different than kind of most people. You you look at, at the world through a particular lens that I wouldn't necessarily. You find, 
that that particular skill set or ability to see a story somewhere, uh, you've honed that to a point now where you can comfortably see a story anywhere. Yeah, I th- probably. Um, but then at the same time, I think, like I think I said this at the very start, every idea that you come up with you think is the best idea ever. Mm. And sometimes I'll think of things and I'll be like, oh, that's a terrible idea. Like, what was I thinking? You know, that that will never sustain a 30-minute doc. But I, I do agree. When, when I see certain characters, I, I, and I think the thing that really sets you apart and sets your your work apart is like when you turn on Netflix, you see Tiger King, you've never seen a character like like Joe Exotic. Do you know, like you instantly you're just like, who is this guy? I want to know more about him. Yeah. And Northern Ireland is full of those people and Yuri is full of those people. Yeah. And it's like I want to learn more about that person. Like what like what what's his thoughts on the world? You know, I've got my own. Um so it's kind of giving people that platform and those characters that are are so engaging that people are going to be like, I want to know more. And I suppose spotting those people is is the trick, mm-hmm. and that yeah, that's the thing is is finding a story to tell with them. One last thing, um, if if you weren't pursuing your passion and career in in producing documentaries, where else do you think that creative uh, energy would have uh, channeled itself? Um, well, I, I really don't know. I, That, that's a tough one. I've never really thought about it because I've never thought about doing anything else. You know, like once I st- sort of got into filmmaking, I, the music took a massive backseat. The, I used to draw all the time. That took a backseat. I just never thought of, of doing anything else really creatively. Um, that's probably, I, I don't know, maybe I'll just be another uh, <laughs> a weekend musician. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. You know, well, I, I think you're fortunate. Um... You know, I, I heard someone say once that if you get up every day and you're fortunate enough to do and um, work at something you love, you'll you'll never have to work another day in your life. Um, and I'm I'm genuinely excited to see to see what comes next. I mean, the work that I've seen is excellent. Um, you're very skillful, um, and not to embarrass you in any way, I'm sure Gareth told you. Um, you know, he describes your ability and and skill set and, and yourself as a genius with it. With an, incre- <laughs> with an incredible vision. Um, I would imagine you'd probably take that back now, given the question <laughs> I, I put to him yesterday, you know, yeah. where, would he, where, where would he be without you? But um, <laughs> but I, I genuinely mean that. I, I think you're doing wonderful things. Um, and I, I wanted this platform to highlight that because I'm sure there's a section of the community that knows who Ali McKenzie is and the part that he's played in, in raising the profile in Uri City with that documentary. Um, but I hope people gain something from it and that if there are people that are aspire to go into the industry and that are passionate about it, that, that they might draw something from this uh, conversation that we've had. Um, I, I so hope you- so because it's, you know, I, I always find it very difficult talking, Damien, about things like this because I like I don't feel like an artsy type person, um, don't kind of fit that stereotype, mm-hmm. um, struggle with the lingo. I've never really networked within the media world you know, I, I kind of struggle with all that, to be honest. And um, it's just not what I was brought up in. And it's not the kind of people that I know. I always just prefer being with a camera in hand out and about and, and meeting people. So I, I find it very hard to kind of put in the words, uh, like even thoughts about things that I tend to just do and then think about it after, you know. So it's like actually ask some of the questions that you've asked. I was like, oh, I've never actually thought of that process before. So 
it's good thinking of that. Hopefully it's been interesting listening. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I've enjoyed it. Um, it. It's it's an area of the industry that I, I know literally nothing about. Um, but I, I hope that this platform does elevate people that are doing pretty cool things. Um, and, and you're one of those people. So I want to thank you for your time and uh, talking to me. It's, I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Brilliant, David. Thanks so much. And keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Ali. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well done. Talk soon. Thanks.